you're not there in Leviticus 19, it is uh, page 89 in the front part there of the Pew Bible. Feel free to turn there so you can follow along. That last verse that was read says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Which raises for us this question, Who is your neighbor? What does it mean to love your neighbor? I don't know if you've read it yet, but day 47 of the book that we're finishing up on Wednesday night says this, on page 173, Who are other people? They fall into three categories, family, neighbor, and enemy. You loved your family, you were civil to your neighbor, and you prayed curses on your enemies. Or at least that's how most people, including the people of Israel, thought about it until Jesus came. For example, in the story of the Good Samaritan, where he says, No longer should you consider people as enemies, but instead love your neighbor as yourself. And when we hear Jesus tell that in the story of the Good Samaritan, we might think, well, this is a new thing that he's telling them. But in reality, he wasn't telling them a new thing. He was reminding them of something that was taught long before, specifically in Leviticus 19, as well as in other places in Scripture. Of course, in order to properly love our neighbor, we must first love God. And so we'll start there, as this passage does. But this passage is centered on love your neighbor. And then it explores... This idea of love your neighbor as yourself, we'll talk more about that as well as we get toward the middle part of the chapter. First of all, like I said, in order for us to love our neighbor, we must love God. So what does it mean, according to Leviticus 19, for us to love God? Well, we see in verses 3 through 8, first of all, that you will not honor God if you dishonor human authorities or those who deserve honor. Where do we see this? Well, for example, in verse 3, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, what does reverencing mother and father have to do with reverencing God, or vice versa? What does reverencing God have to do with reverencing father and mother? Well, there are two passages in the New Testament that help to explain this further for us. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lays out for the Ephesians a series of commands of children honoring parents, wives honoring husbands, slaves honoring masters, And in that context, he is saying that a regard for human authority reflects a proper attitude toward God. Now, there is not an absolute obedience. How do we know that? Well, Romans 13 says that we are to honor human government, right? There are instances where a child should not obey their parent, where a wife should not obey her husband, where someone who is in service to another person would not obey the person that's over them, right? Or where a citizen would not obey government. But that's not typically where we're at operating in the exceptions. Where we tend to be is we're not going to obey any of those authorities. We're going to do what we want. And when we have that attitude and we forget that those authorities come to us from God and are placed over us by God, then it makes it very difficult for us to properly honor God because we're not honoring those human authorities he's placed over us. Furthermore, we see in verse 32, this statement, you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Again, these ideas are linked. If you don't show proper respect and honor for those who are older, which is a principle that's taught throughout Scripture, 
you're not generally going to be showing proper respect and honor to God. There are rare cases where we can do the right thing in one area, not in another area of our lives, but generally these things are linked. Proper reverence for God leads to proper respect of those who are older. Proper reverence for God leads to proper respect of human authorities, and it works both ways. So we love God by honoring the authorities that he has provided, by showing respect for those that he has brought before us. We honor God, secondly, by worshiping God only in the right way. We see this, for example, in verse 4. We are not allowed to worship, or the Israelites, rather, were not allowed to worship idols or demons. Verse 4, do not turn to idols or make molten gods. And then verse 31, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord. So on the one hand, we know that it was inappropriate to make out of a tree or gold or whatever else, stone, is set up some sort of shrine and worship a God that's not God, or to worship the true God by means of a shrine when he said, that's not how I want you to worship me. It also forbids trying to gain information from demons by people who claim to channel those demons or, or speak on their behalf. And so, you know, a practical application of something like this is, well, we would say, well, what does that have to do with me today? And, well, that was just for the Israelites, right? People don't, don't set up stone gods in America and bow down and worship them. Well, what does idolatry look like today? Idolatry looks like, I'm really excited about my new computer and that's the imp most important thing in my life. And you say who would be excited about a computer? That's silly. Maybe it's a pair of shoes. Maybe it's something at, at your work. Whatever else. We may not have literal idols that we set up, but there are certainly things that we worship that are not God. You say, well, I would, I would never do this whole consorting with, talking with demons, right? But when we try to uh, obtain or understand the future by consulting astrological signs, or by playing around with something like a Ouija board, or by uh, talking to someone who claims to be a psychic, we're at least coming very close to what God told the Israelites not to do. And we say, well, that was just something for the Israelites. Paul says in Corinthians, God doesn't want you to worship demons even today. It wasn't okay then, it's not okay now. So if we're going to worship God, that means no idols, no demons. If we're going to worship God, we don't get to make the rules for worship the way we want them to be. Verses 5 through 8. What's the big deal about whether they ate the sacrifice days 1 and 2 but not day 3? At the most basic level, here's the big deal. God said don't do it. And so we can come up with other reasons for why God would have said that. But just like we saw this principle earlier in the book of Leviticus with regard to the offerings, God laid out very specific requirements. Now, perhaps it was a looking forward to the fact that Jesus was going to be in the tomb two days and rise on the third, and he wanted them to have that in the back of their minds as a picture, but maybe not. At the very most basic level, God said, here's what you're supposed to do, and if the Israelites loved and obeyed God, they were going to do it. And so this passage says, love God. You love God by honoring him which means you will in turn honor the authorities he's established. You honor God by worshiping him only in the right way. No idols, no demons, no making up your own rules about how you come before God. 
But then the bulk of the passage teaches this idea, love your neighbor. We see this, for example, in verses 9 through 18, and then again later in 32 through 36. What are some of the principles that we see here? First of all, verse 9, care for those in need, even strangers. This idea about gleaning is basically you have fruit. What happens with fruit? Fruit gets ripe, it falls off the tree. Sometimes just before it falls off the tree, you can also pick it and it's ripe. The person who has the attitude, this is all mine, I'm going to collect it all for myself, it's all for me, he's going to pick up all the fruit off the ground that's fallen, he's going to pick up all the fruit off the tree that's ripe, and he's going to take it in and it's going to be his. And God says no. There are people who may not have a fruit tree, and the fact that you have the fruit tree and it's giving you fruit is a sign of my kindness towards you. And so some of that fruit's going to fall to the ground and you need to leave it for those who are in need. And some of that fruit, uh, when you're, or not fruit, but rather that grain that you're going out and harvesting, you're going to miss some of it. Don't cut down everything in the field. Leave some of it for those who have no food to come and get that food. Well, what does that have to do with things today? Well, in our society, we tend to think, I don't have to worry about that, because if somebody needs help, they can just go to the government, and the government will give them something, and they'll be good, right? Um, the reality is, that process is not as straightforward as you might think. So, uh, you see someone standing on uh, the corner of the street asking for money. There's a couple of scenarios. One is... They've decided that's easier than looking for a job. Another is they just like doing that better than some other job. And another is they actually need help. They need money, right? Um, the attitude that says everyone is out to scam me so I'll never help anyone is, I think, a selfishness that argues against the principle of this passage. A wise approach, I think, would say instead of handing out 50 bucks to every person you encounter in the street corner, is to spend time getting to know the people in your community who have needs and then help people in the context of those relationships rather than just throwing out money that may or may not help people specifically, right? In America, even the poorest person as a general rule in America has a great abundance compared to most people in other countries. And so our abundance has had an, an, like an indirect relationship or an inverse relationship to the degree of our generosity. The more we have, the less willing we are to share it. And this passage says, if you love your neighbor, you ought to be willing to show kindness to someone, even if they don't deserve it, even if they may waste it, and even if there's something else that you would like to do with that, whatever it is, that you might enjoy more than giving it and helping someone else. People have misunderstood what Jesus said in the New Testament, where he says to the rich man, give away all your goods and come follow me. Jesus was not saying, everyone in the whole world, get rid of all your money, go live on the street, come follow me. He's saying to the young man, you love money, which God are you going to follow, money or me? Right? That's what he's saying. But sometimes we then say, well, then I don't have to worry about giving anything. I don't have to worry about generosity to anyone. But this is saying, care for those in need. Now, in the New Testament specifically, it says that's in the context of the local church, right? Care for fellow believers. We see that, for example, in Acts 6. There's widows in the church. The church is taking care of their own widows. Practical reality, 
Our church cannot help every single person who contacts me saying, will you give me money, right? I can't buy hotel rooms for every person who ever calls the church or every person who shows up and knocks at the door because there's just not enough money to do that for every person. But that doesn't mean we go to the extreme of hard-heartedness and say we never help anyone out who's in need. And this extends even to people who are strangers. We see this in verses 33 to 34. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are aliens or strangers in the land of Egypt. So, practical application of this to society today. There are differences. Israel was a nation, and so this was people who were ethnically not Israelites who were living and dwelling among them, right? Christians are not a nation. It's not like Christians are only people from Ireland, or Christians are only people from Egypt, or Christians are only people from Russia. That's not how the church works. It's made up of people from many nations. And yet, in the same way that God called the Israelites to have regard for the stranger among them, God calls us as believers to have regard for unbelievers and not treat them as less people because they're not yet believing in Jesus. And so, in that regard, we should not do that person wrong and we should love them as ourselves. Which flows into the next point that he makes here in this chapter, which is not only should we care for those in need, even strangers, but we should reject oppression. We saw this in verses 11 through 16. We see it also in verses 35 through 37. What are some examples of oppression? Under that broad heading, you see things like stealing and lying and general dishonesty. This principle of if you have your neighbor's wages, like you said, hey, do some work for me. And he's done the work and you say, well, you know what? I'll pay you tomorrow. What does the verse specifically say? It says, if you have the money and he's done the work, don't hold it over till the next day. Why? Because he needs that money. And so there's a measure of oppression that says, let me maximize what I can get out of what I have. And even though the person is owed the money for the work that they've done and I have it available and I can pay them right now, I'm not going to do it. Now, I'm not going to comment about pay periods, whether they should be two weeks or or one week or, or the next day. That's not my main point. But my point is simply to say, someone who has the attitude of oppression will say, I have what I can do to give you according to what you've agree- the work that you've agreed to do and have fulfilled, but I've got something I want to do with it here first, so I'm not going to give it to you yet. And that's not the right attitude according to this passage. So dishonesty, theft... Abusive speech are all connected as as evils of oppression. Failing to pay employees can be a sign of greed. Furthermore, a a mistreatment of those who cannot um, fight against you. So, for example, he says, don't curse a deaf man. Well, why would you get away with cursing a deaf man? He can't hear what you're saying. Don't place a stumbling block before the blind. Why would you get away with putting a stumbling block in front of the blind man, he can't see what's coming. And so if we have a position of power and then use it to mistreat those who have no defense against us, we are expressing the sort of oppression that is not love of neighbor and that God forbids according to this passage. Furthermore, 
uh, there is not supposed to be a measure of favoritism in the decisions and the actions that we take. He says, verse 15, Don't be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. That's what we do, right? Think about banks giving out loans in the last year, right? Whose loans got bumped to the top of the pile? The rich people's loans, right? Because it's a lot less work to deal with a loan for $100,000 for a big corporation than it is to deal with 50 loans for small corporations for you know, a much smaller amount, right? It's a lot less work. It's a lot easier. People show favoritism. We do that on an individual level, right? James 2 guard warns us against this in the New Testament. He says someone walks into the church. You say, hey, this person looks like they've walked into the church and it's going to help out our church if we get this guy who has this CEO job and makes tons of money because then he'll give lots of money to the church or he'll help us out, you know, give us a discount on something. And this other person walks in and this other person doesn't seem to have anything to offer. If I show kindness to this person and disregard for this person, that's the sort of favoritism that God told the Israelites you cannot do. You can't do injustice in judgment. You can't be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Don't treat people differently, whether in legal matters or personal relationships, based on what they can do for you. We see this at the end of the chapter as well, verses 35 through 37. Don't cheat people. Do no wrong in judgment and measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hen. I am the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt. What does this look like? Maybe you're selling something to someone on Craigslist and you said, I'm going to sell it to you for 20 bucks and the guy hands you 30 and you notice it before the person leaves. You're like, hey, extra $10, no worries. Or do you say, hey, here's your money. We agreed on this price. I mean, I don't know that we necessarily need to go to the links that Abraham Lincoln did where he walked like eight miles to return four cents, but that'd be a better attitude to have than I'm going to scheme and scam people, right? Care for those in need. Reject oppression. Love your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Don't hate. There's this, there's this contrast here. Verse 17, don't hate. Verse 18, love. You may surely reprove, but not incur sin. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear a grudge. These are the, the contrasting statements we find in verses 17 and 18. It's not the selfish twisting of this idea. Do good to others, so others will do good to you. Do you know what that's called? That's called manipulation, right? I'm going to do a favor for you, so you owe me one later. That's how the world operates, but that's not what loving your neighbor means. It's not do good so karma doesn't get you, because that's a pagan idea. Well, if I don't do good to this person, something bad's going to happen to me later. That's not it either. It is do good in the same way that you automatically do good for yourself. No one has to teach us to watch out for ourselves. No one has to remind you, hey, maybe I should eat. Hey, maybe I'm thirsty. Hey, maybe I am tired and I need to sleep. We just are aware of those things about ourselves, right? And we want to do something to fix those particular problems. The same way that you would have that natural regard for yourself, have it for the people around you. Jesus and the apostles build on this idea. It's not just love your neighbor who's a fellow Israelite, 
in this context. It's not just love your neighbor who is easy to get along with. But Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So when God says love your neighbor, He doesn't just have in mind those who can repay you back or those who can help you out or those who are your best friends. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? The the Good Samaritan story broadens it from just the person who lives next to you to anyone who crosses your path in God's providence. And so we're like, yeah, I, I can get along with the people I go to church with, or I can get along with people in my family, or I can get along with a couple of my coworkers, but everybody do these things? I don't think so. And God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's think more about this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. I, I said at the beginning, this is not loving yourself because nobody has to teach us to do that, right? It's not a command, go love yourself, because we just do that, right? It's consider how to behave yourself in love to God and neighbor. And the middle section of this chapter kind of would add this in parentheses, even in complicated situations. Verses 19 through 29 show situations where there is this conflict between two sets of laws or apparent conflict between two sets of laws, situations where uh, there is this principle being upheld of God wanting the Israelites to be separate and distinct. And so people have sometimes looked at Leviticus 19 and they said, well, this is just sort of, he sort of threw a bunch of things together here. Moses didn't know what he was doing. Maybe somebody copied it wrong later and mixed it all up. But here's the organizing principle. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, even in difficult situations. And so he gives some extreme examples here in the middle where people are, are, are hesitant to say, really, we're supposed to do what God calls us to do even in these situations? But it, it bears out the point, and hopefully we'll see that as we go through them. The first thing is, keep what should be separate, separate. Verse 19. Don't breed together two kinds of your cattle. Don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. Don't wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Now, this is a verse that skeptics love to pick out from the Bible and be like, hey, check the tag on your shirt, and if it's 60-40 cotton and polyester, you're a heretic, and you should be ashamed of yourself for being such a hypocrite. But here's the thing. God, because Jesus has fulfilled the law, does not call us to say, well, I'm going to follow the moral parts of the law and skip the ceremonial and civil parts, the sort of house rules kind of things like this. All of the law teaches moral principles. All of the law teaches us something about God. And even though we're not bound to obey it today, this principle is continued in the New Testament. What what was the principle that God was teaching them? God was teaching them this principle that there are things that don't go together. And so while it might have seemed silly or pointless or a lot of extra work to obey verse 19 in the context of their society. And while we are not obligated to follow it today, so if you do wear that shirt of cotton and polyester, you're not sinning. The principle of mixture is this. There are things that don't go together. And what's the main thing that doesn't go together? God and sin. And so this is the idea that is built upon in the New Testament. What's the, what's the picture that Jesus uses? He said, you have a field, you have wheat, and you have weeds. 
And when they first start growing up, what do they look like? Exactly the same. And so Jesus takes a verse like verse 19 and uses it as a word picture in the New Testament to say, at the beginning, you can't tell the difference between those who love God and those who don't love God because in the young stages of growth, most plants look alike. God's going to sort it out in the end. You have a responsibility to speak about Jesus to people around you. And the two things don't mix. So, for example, when he comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, he says, an unbeliever and a believer don't mix in the context of marriage, in the context of cooperation in various things, because they're different. Quick comment, because people have misused this. They've used a verse like this, and they've used it as, an, as a justification for various kinds of racism. So they've said, this person of this ethnicity can't marry this person of that ethnicity, whether it be black and white or, uh, or, or yellow and white or red and white or whatever. All of these colors, they said, well, these can't mix because God said don't mix things. That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is good and evil don't mix. And God is giving them this constant reminder that he's going to build on later as he develops what he reveals to them in the scriptures. And people will say, well, but, but God told the Israelites not to marry the people of the other nations. Yes, why? It wasn't an, a racial superiority, an ethnic superiority, honestly, because there's only one human race. It was, God says, I don't want you Israelites to marry a Canaanite, because the Canaanite worships idols, and you're supposed to worship me, and if you, if you marry with them, you're going to be drawn away to worship idols. Which then comes back to Paul's point in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, which is, when believers and unbelievers get together, there is a fundamental difference, a separation, a distinction like there was the two kinds of grain growing up in the field, the grain and the weeds, like there was two different um, breeds of cattle. Uh, there, are, there are boundaries that God has established between good and evil that don't mix. And we try to make them mix, right? We try to say, well, this isn't that big of a deal. This unbeliever and this believer, we can cooperate on this thing, right? But there's a fundamental difference and a distinction. And so when God says to the Israelites, don't mix things, he's trying to teach them this principle. Stop being mixed in with the things of the pagan world around you. And did they listen? Not really. Over and over again through the history of the Israelites, they kept saying, "Oh, hey, you know what? They got a king. We want a king. Hey, they do this with their people. We want to do that with our people. And God said, no. You're supposed to be distinct. You're supposed to be separate. There's not supposed to be a mixture between you and paganism because you belong to me, you're distinct, you're different, you're my chosen people. And yet, they didn't learn either the visual lesson of what they were doing every day out in the field, or the spiritual lesson of the separation between good and evil, and yet we're reminded of it again in the New Testament. So keep what should be separate, separate. Then there's another difficult case. And I would just sum it up this way. See a way forward through difficult situations. Verses 20 through 22 has basically this idea. There's a man 
who takes a woman who is promised to another man. She was perhaps a slave who is captured in battle. And this other man says, I'm going to take her to be my wife. And this, the, the first man takes her from the second man. What should they do in this case? Well, Leviticus 20 said that those who committed adultery would face death. So if the one man took a wife from among the slaves of captivity, and then a second man behaved in immorality toward her, committed adultery with her, the penalty was death. But the situation is they weren't yet married, and the woman is not free, and so there would have been a question in the minds of the Israelites, how do we resolve this? And the response is, there needs to be a punishment. The punishment is not death because of the extenuating circumstances of the situation, but there is a punishment. Sin has been committed. A sacrifice has to be made. It has to be dealt with. And it says in explanation in verse 20, they shall not be put to death because she was not free. Now there's a part of us that would like it to say, and the man was killed because he took advantage of the woman, right? We would like to see that, right? But that's not what it says. And there was other people who say, well, but the Bible is, is mistreating women. But there is a penalty that the man has to pay. It's not like he gets off free for his wrong action. How do we reconcile these things? I think in much the same way that we dealt with things last week in chapter 18, which is God established a pattern. The pattern is marriage, one man, one woman for life. People in their sinfulness corrupted that into things like polygamy and adultery and all of these other sorts of things, which were contrary to God's pattern. Did God in every instance strike everyone down the moment they committed one of those sins, one of those foolish decisions? No. Did they even happen in the lives of some of the people like Abraham in the Old Testament that the Jews revered as a hero of the faith? Yes. How do we reconcile all that? It's complicated. I don't have all the answers for you, but here's where I would start. I would say, God had already laid out the pattern. God reveals more truth over the course of the, the explanation of the Bible, right? So what we know in Genesis is different from what we know by the time we read Revelation. And so there's a degree to which God shows patience and mercy toward people who had less information but were not ignorant, about what they were doing. Where does that leave us today? Paul said in Acts 17, God has been patient with and overlooked ignorance, but you've heard the truth, and so your responsibility at this point in time, regardless of what God did with the person over there, don't use them as an excuse to say, I'm going to sin. Instead say, God, I need to repent, I need to turn from my sin I need to trust in you through Jesus. We go to the next case in verses 23 through 25. Remember, everything belongs to God, even if it appears to be yours. There's a, a rule that they were not supposed to eat the fruit of the tree for the first three years. In the fourth year, they should give its fruit to the temple. It should be an offering of praise to the Lord. And then in the fifth year, they could eat of its fruit. 
And people have looked at this and they said, well, this is a good way to treat a fruit tree. You give it time to grow and develop, and then you'll get a bigger harvest. And yes, that's a normal side effect of following this process that God laid out for them. But I don't think the main point of God giving them this rule was so that you'll have lots of apples, so that you'll have lots of whatever other fruit you might have growing. The point is not that. The point is this. You think that it's your tree. You think that it's your land. But it's yours because I've given it to you. And the fact that it has fruit is my kindness to you. And so just like you're supposed to leave some of it for the poor and needy, here's also the parameters for when you can and can't use this thing that is yours, your own thing, right? And so it is a reminder that even when something appears to be yours, ultimately it belongs to God. How do we see this carry over into the New Testament? Well, there's this transition in attitude from, I have to bring a tithe and offering to the temple, to I freely give to God of what he has loaned to me, which is everything, all of who I am, all of the things that I possess. Yes, I own these things from a legal perspective in modern day society, but ultimately, the only reason I have them is because they're God's. And so it's not, I give God some of my stuff. It is, I return to God some of what he's already loaned to me. Building on that, your body belongs to God. We see this in verses 26 through 28. These are difficult verses as well. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. So then again, the skeptic crops up if he hasn't already, and he says, Hey, this is dumb. Why can't you trim your beard? Notice what it says. It is not a general forbidding of ever cutting hair. What is it? It is a avoidance of practices associated with pagan false worship. How do we know this? Because verse 26, don't practice divination or soothsaying. Verse 28, don't make any cuts in your body for the dead. Well, what does that correlate to? Verse 31, don't turn to mediums or spiritists. And... Earlier, this idea of how to eat the sacrifices and when to eat it and when it profanes you, plus all the things we've seen earlier in the book of Leviticus, God's saying this. He's not saying you can never get a haircut. He's not saying you can never trim your beard. He's saying you can't perform pagan rituals in the marks that you make upon your body and in the way that you treat your body and what you take into your body. Don't eat blood because, as we saw earlier, Blood is associated with life, and it's reserved for atonement in the scheme that God has established in the world. Don't make marks upon your body for the sake of pagan worship ceremonies. Where do we see an example of this? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What are they doing to get the attention of their God? They're cutting themselves, right? As this, is in this religious frenzy to try to get their God to do something. We can't do that today. Now... If you, if you have a tattoo, are you, are you sinful? Do you have to take it off? That's not the point. The point is not, what did you do before you knew Jesus? Or even if you did it after you knew Jesus, are you, are you sinning by having this mark upon your body? The, I mean, it's not like this. Your, your body is a sacred temple and it will remain pristine forever. Because 
Let's be honest. As we grow older, our bodies break down, right? They get wrinkles. They, they, they degrade over time, right? Knees and everything else. So the point is not it's fixed in this state of eternal youth and is perfect forever, right? That's not the point. The point is your body belongs to God. So do you worship God with it or do you worship some, something someone else? That, that's the point that God is after. He wants their worship. He wants them to see their body belongs to God. And then we see even that their offspring belongs to God. So fruit trees, those who were their rights by captivity from war, um, their fields, their bodies, even their children, all of these things belong to God. They were not to be given in service to pagan temples. Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot so the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. They were not supposed to willingly give their child to a pagan temple. The child was not supposed to willingly give herself or himself in service to a pagan temple. We see that in chapter 21. There was certainly not to be any kind of trafficking where they would sell one of their children in service of idolatry for personal gain. All of these things would lead to perversion, and as we saw last week from chapter 18, this idea, verse 25, the land became defiled, the land spewed out its inhabitants. And God says, whether it's your fields, whether it's those who are belong to you by battle, whether it is uh, the, the trees growing in, in your, near your house, the fruit trees, whether it's your body, whether it's your children, ultimately all of these things are not yours, they are God's. And so when it comes to applying love God and love your neighbors yourself, here are the principles that I'm giving you, even in extraordinarily difficult situations, to say, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the main point of this whole chapter? The main point of this chapter is verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the main reason given for all these things throughout this chapter is this. I am the Lord. Why do you do it? Because I am the Lord. We can't define this as the world does. It's not love your neighbor as yourself means never doing anything that your neighbor doesn't like. Why? Because verse 17 said, You may surely reprove your neighbor but do not incur sin because of him. We are not to take vengeance, but we are also not supposed to say, well, the way that I love my neighbor is by hiding away from him, and then I never have to deal with him. That's not the point. The way that I love my neighbor is not manipulating him to bend him to my will. The way that I love my neighbor is following principles of justice and honor and obedience to God in a way that pictures God to the people around me. How do we see this? Well, 1 Peter says, we are supposed to live what this chapter describes as holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. That's a New Testament principle as well. And while the specific applications may look different in our present situation, we're not necessarily planting fields and sowing clothes and all these things in the way that they were. The principle remains the same. Be holy because I am holy. How do we demonstrate that? In outward expressions of love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. We are bent toward loving ourselves. Sometimes doing good to other people and generally forgetting God. 
this passage calls us to reverse the order of things naturally. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself by God's help. The only way that this is possible is if we've begun to turn from our sins and turn to Jesus as the Bible describes. Because we don't have the strength to love our neighbor as ourselves on our own, right? How many of you can sustain the strength to love your family in any given week 100% of the time? Let alone your neighbor, let alone the person who infuriates you. You can't do this on your own. But if you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and He, through God's power, enables you to begin to do what Jesus calls us to do. Not treat nicely the people I like, not treat nicely the people who can do good stuff for me, not follow God some of the time, but be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your neighbor as yourself because you've begun to love God with all of who you are. You need Jesus to do this. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. You need the plan of God the Father working out in your life to do this. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look through a passage like this, there are many challenging ideas and certainly things that we could explore further. But the important truth that we consider here is what you've called us to do. May we first be trusting in Jesus, because apart from him, he is the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But building upon that, give us the grace to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our natural desire is to love ourselves above anything and everybody else. And it is hard work to love our neighbor. But we know that by your grace, we can do that. And we can be, uh, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament, shining lights of Jesus to the world around us. Pray that you would help us to do that today.